0: Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> let's go to work. Hebrews. We're going to finish chapter 12 today. Uh, we've been marching through this book, and we're in this kind of theme for the last several Sundays of endurance. Um, really a theme throughout the whole book, but it's, it's, it's getting magnified here lately, especially in chapter 12. The beginning of chapter 12, he makes an emphasis of endurance, of saying, hey, since we're sur- surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, all these like, Old Testament heroes that he went through in chapter 11, he says, let's... Let's press on, right? Let's lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely to us, anything that trips us up, and let us what? Let's run. And not just run, but let's run with endurance uh, the race that's set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured, he endured the cross. So we have this like call to endure, call to press on. And normally a call for endurance is goes together with something hard. You don't have to really champion somebody to endure their nap or their ice cream. It's like, yeah, we got this, right? We're good. But hard things, like death on a cross, I mean, like you've you got to endure this. You suffer through it. And guys, Christianity is hard. It's hard. I think the Bible's pretty clear about, like, that shouldn't be surprising to anybody. It's hard when he's like, hey, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. Like, this is the life you should expect. Or here's a broad road, and here's the narrow road. The broad road's easy, and many people travel that one, but the narrow road, this is a bit more challenging, and this is the road I'm calling you. Or if they hate you, don't think it's strange, they hated me first. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. Like, we follow somebody who is publicly executed. And the call of a Christian is a hard life. It's difficult. And when we think about endurance, we have like this ongoing passion and zeal and faithfulness. It's not just, well, I'm still here, aren't I? Like that's kind of low bar. Uh, Endurance is is not just about attendance. Or I could say endurance is so much more than just attendance. Like there's, there's something more that we're called to in that. In fact, there are times in Scripture where people... Keep showing up, like their attendance is good, but God has some sharp rebukes for them. Like it's I'm just not looking at your attendance, like you're still here, but you quit. Like you gave up a while ago. And here's some some of those real encouraging passages. This is in Isaiah chapter 1. He says, When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assemblies. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. This is God talking about their gatherings. Here's another one in uh, Amos chapter 5. He says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. That's a bad day. all right. If you run away from a lion and you meet a bear, you know you're not to a good start. He said, or you went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. This is how God is describing their gatherings. Is it not the day of the Lord, of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Like your songs you're singing, they're just noise. And and the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream." He's calling them for something different. He's despised their gatherings, their religious routines. Here's another one in uh, Malachi 1, I believe. It says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? Like there's some confusion there. What, what are we doing wrong? Like we keep showing up. We're, we're at church every Sunday. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Like, you're just bringing me the leftovers. Like, you come and you go through the motions, but you've checked out. Like, there's no passion behind it anymore. Uh, here's one in the New Testament. This is First Corinthians 11. He's talking about their, their gatherings, specifically around communion. He says this, "'But in the following instruction, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse.'" What he's saying is, it would be better if you didn't even come to church. That's what God is saying about their gatherings. So when the writer of Hebrews is calling us to endurance, it's, it's more, when you get into the specifics of what exactly you're looking for, the, the question is not, how's your attendance been? The, the question is, How, how's your passion? How's your zeal? How's your gratitude and joy? How's your worship? How's your obedience? Because the reality is, those things can tend to fade long before your attendance does. Like, yeah, you come to church... You don't sing. Or you come to church, but as soon as you leave, you live just like everybody else. Or you come to church, but you express no hope and joy in the gospel. You're just down and negative all the time. Like, you've checked out. Like, you're not enduring. Like, you're still here, but when it comes to endurance and what we're being called to do, he's like, that, that's missing. And when the author of Hebrews is challenging his readers for endurance, what he's talking about is an ongoing passion and faithfulness and zeal for the Lord. And Christianity is hard. You may think of it like this if you, if you run into a, a couple that's been married for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, marriage is hard. You might ask a question like, how do you keep the love alive? Like, what's, what's the secret to this ongoing, faithful, passionate marriage? Well, when it comes to Christianity, Christianity is hard. And when you've been following Jesus for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, so like how do you keep the passion? How do you keep the zeal for the Lord? How do you keep your worship alive? How do you keep your faithfulness going? Like, what's, what's the secret there? How do you do that? And for you in this room, some of you have said, yeah, I've been a Christian for a long time. Let me just ask you, how's your passion for Jesus? Like, how's your zeal for the Lord? Your faithfulness when no one's looking, your your worship, your just passion to honor Him in everything you do? Or maybe if that has waned, how do you rekindle it? How how do you rekindle it? In our text today, we're going to get something that we're supposed to remember and then something that we're supposed to do. There's a call to remember something, and there's a call to action. And hopefully this can rekindle our passion as we seek to follow Christ. Um, our text starts in verse 18 of chapter 12. We're actually going to reach back to some challenging passages in the text before us um, because I think our text shed some light on understanding that. So look at, let's start in verse 15. Here we go. <clears throat> I'm offering three bucks for every amen. I'm just saying that. <laughs> Yeah, Michael will pay you. Where's Michael at? (laughs) All right, here we go. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, "...for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." So, you're going to have what he's about to say. It's in the backdrop of this story of Jacob and Esau. When uh, Esau was out hunting, Matthew kind of unpacked this a little bit last week. He comes back, he's hungry. Jacob had made a meal. He's like, Give me some food. Jacob's like, Give me your birthright. Esau's like, Sounds like a good deal to me. Boom, they make a deal. And he kind of sets the background of what he's about to say with that story. And what he's saying is, Hey, don't be like Esau. He had no endurance. Like he traded his birthright, the promise to come for something immediate, right away. He said, don't, don't be like Esau. Now, he's going to give us some motivation to not be like Esau or to not just live in the moment, but have uh, the promise that we live for in mind, directing our actions. So here's our text, starting right in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, what is he talking about there? He's, giving some, uh, he's referring to a past event. There's, there's uh, stuff going on. Well, the, it's pretty clear. He's talking about when God gave the law at Mount Sinai. And if you want to get more details of the parallels from this passage to what was happening, you could read it in Exodus 19. But it's like a command, don't even let your animals touch the mountain. Um, there, there's thunder. There, it's like there's literal mountain shaking. The, the holiness of God at Mount Sinai was a terror for people. Like it freaked them out. And if you can kind of... Imagine the situation. God did just express his love for these people in rescuing them from slavery. But the way that he did it is he took the most, uh, the biggest earthly power people know of in in the Egyptians and he mopped the floor with them. And then he says, once you come out in the woods, I want to have a talk with you. (laughs) you might be a little freaked out, right? Like there's, And then when you do, he's speaking in thunder and the ground shaking. And, and what's their response? And look at verse 19. It says, And the sound of the trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure. I mean, they're overwhelmed by the, the holiness of God in this moment. And the idea of trying to appease the holiness of God through our own obedience is terrifying i mean who could ever do that who could ever do that but he says you did not come to this mountain this is not not the mountain you have come to and then in the beginning of verse 22 he says but you have come to mount zion so you get this this imagery of two different mountains in our text mount sinai and mount zion and he's making some contrast between these, these two mountains. And the analogy of these two mountains represents two different ways to God. Law and grace. Judaism, Christianity. The old way, that the new gospel that he, he's proclaimed. And for, for one, not enduring makes sense. It says they couldn't endure it. Like with that, you know, the, the weight of God's holiness and his standards, who could stand up underneath that? Like not enduring makes sense for that. But but Mount Zion, grace, like endurance makes sense. Like this is good news. You, you would stay in that. And he's going to kind of draw these parallels. So he, he gives us a picture of Mount Sinai with you know people begging for it to stop. The high standards of an animal can't even touch it. Um, Moses is trembling in fear. And now he's going to explain Mount Zion. And here, here's what he has to say about that. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable angels in festal gathering. Now here's what he's saying. This is the mountain you have come to. This heavenly city, this heavenly Jerusalem. And it is filled with more angels than you can count, and they're partying. This is an angelic party, and you want to be at this party. This is the message I brought to you. This is the mountain of the gospel I came to proclaim to you. Like, you're going to want to be at this party. You're going to want to be in this location. He goes on to say this. I'll read the whole thing because it's it's good and nobody amended anything at that time. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gatherings. Amen. Okay, thanks. So I was like... It was the second time. I was like, if, if nobody says amen after I ask for it, I'm going to go home and eat my feelings. Like, I don't know what to mean. All right, here we go. <laughs> and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, that word assembly is ecclesia. It's the same word in Matthew 16 where you get our word church. It says gathering. And it's the assembly of the firstborn of, of Jesus. So basically, the church of Christ is there and they are enrolled in heaven or they're registered like if you got i got a reservation i come and i give my name and it's like we've been expecting you like your name is in the book of life like you have a place here like you've been enrolled into this heavenly city and then he says this right another spot for an amen you guys missed that one too and to god the judge of all now this is a bit odd um In the Greek, judge comes before God, which is for emphasis. So what he's emphasizing is judge. This God is the judge, and he's going to judge everything. My question is, why would you refer to God as a judge in a paragraph stressing the joy of coming into his presence? That sounds more like Mount Sinai. (laughs) Like, What am I getting myself into here? That this this God is, is a righteous, holy judge... So why am I stressing the fact that this God is is a judge in the middle of a paragraph that's all pointing out the joy of coming into his presence? Look at what he goes on to say. And to the God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He's saying, listen, there, there is something that is different that changes the way or the confidence that I have in standing before God who is the judge. I've been vindicated. I've been made righteous. Or it says made perfect. That word perfect, it's like it's complete. You've been completely forgiven. You've been completely redeemed. You've been completely made righteous. You've been completely presented innocence. So you can stand before God confidently like, yeah, he's a judge, but I don't have to fear him because I have a mediator who mediates a new covenant and his blood speaks a better word and I've been made perfect. So I still have the same holiness of God that's represented on Mount Sinai, but now on Mount Zion, I have the grace of God that gives me access to God. All right, yeah, well, you're tracking with me. Like, so this is some profound gospel message. He's saying, I didn't come to you kind of preaching this burden of a law. I came to you preaching the most amazing message in the world of redemption in Jesus Christ, where you get a party with angels in the kingdom of God. Like, this is the message I have given you. Why would you ever walk away from that? Why would you wander from that? Now, he says, his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is interesting because he's he's giving blood a voice. Like this imagery of a blood blood talking. And he brings in another Old Testament story of Cain and Abel. Why? Well, because that's a story that also gives blood a voice. If you remember the story of Cain and Abel, there was some jealousy um, around offerings made to God. And Cain ends up killing his brother Abel. Um, and God comes to Abel or to Cain it's like where's your brother he knows it's just like he knew like you know um, in the garden he he knows and he says well am I my brother's keeper um, bad idea to argue with God uh, <coughs> God in his patience he's uh, he says this this is Genesis 4:10 he says and the Lord said what have you done the voice of your brother's what blood is crying to me from the ground So that's the background to him saying the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So to know what the better word is, we've got to know, like, well, what was the blood of Abel speaking? And the blood of Abel was speaking uh, out or crying out to God for justice that led to Cain's judgment. But the blood of Jesus, that speaks a better word, cries out to God, redemption, forgiveness, forgiveness grace and it leads to our salvation so as you're not you're not under this place where justice is going to lead to your judgment you're you're under this this blood that's crying out you've been redeemed and it's going to lead to your salvation guys the blood of jesus proclaims our salvation and that's really important to get because so often we kind of default to thinking it's my behavior that validates me it's my my giving that justifies me. It's, it's my personality that gives me value. And here's what he's saying. It's no, the blood of Jesus is crying out on your behalf. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are made righteous. And it's not of yourself. It's the work of Jesus Christ that covers you and proclaims that about you. This is what he wants them to remember. This is what he wants us to remember. He's like, don't forget this. This is what I came and and preached to you. I I didn't preach Mount Zion. That's that's an old message that you're going back to. I preach Mount Zion, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what you run to? This is amazing news. Why would you ever run away from this? Why would I need to like convince you to endure when what I'm telling you to run to is an angelic party in the kingdom of God? Like, why, why would you run away from this? Why would anybody do that? well, why would anybody sell their birthright for a bowl of soup? But he did it. Because, I mean, the birthright, I mean, someday, maybe, there's a promise. We're supposed to be a nation. I mean, I got one brother. We don't even like each other, and our parents show favoritism. Like, I mean, maybe that'll happen, but, but right now, I'm hungry. I mean, it's just kind of out there and he he switches tones in verse 25 and there's that another you know, increased urgency and warning that he's coming across look at verse 25 because this is all in the background of hey don't be like Esau don't 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 live short-sighted life don't don't lose sight of the promise that you're living for and just kind of live for the now and then he, he says this verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Now, it's gentler here than what it really is. What he's saying is, you better make sure you don't refuse him who's speaking. Like, there, there's a sense of urgency and rebuke in it. Like, make sure you don't refuse him who's speaking. Well, who's speaking? What's, what's, what's being spoken? Well, just in the sentence before that, it's the blood of Christ. That's what's speaking. It's speaking a better word. Grace, forgiveness, redemption. He's saying, Don't you dare refuse grace. Without the grace of Jesus, you have no hope. Don't neglect this. Don't take this lightly. Don't brush this aside for a bowl of soup or for whatever's right in front of you now. Without the grace of God, you're you're hopeless. Don't 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 refuse this. And he goes on to say this. For if, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So there's kind of this contrast from lesser to greater. Like, you know, that warning at Mount Sinai was true and they didn't live up and they faced the punishments that unfolded in the Old Testament. Well, how much more are, are we not going to be able to escape the word of God that came to us in Jesus Christ? Basically, if you reject Jesus, there will be no escape of the coming judgment. There will be no escape of the coming judgment. In fact, he goes on verse 26. He says, at that time, his voice shook the earth. Referring back to Mount Sinai and how that mountain shook at the giving of the law. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So what he's saying is, hey, Sinai gave you a taste of my holiness. But there's a day coming where you're going to get the whole meal. You're going to get the whole meal in my judgment. And without the grace of God, there is no escaping it. Without the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ, there's no escaping it. So you are got to get this weird, um, like right off, there's this encouraging word of like, I didn't come to you and preach to you the burden of the law. I came and preached to you the grace of the gospel in Jesus Christ the most amazing news in the world. Like you have an angelic party. You've been made perfect by the blood of Jesus who speaks a better word. And you have a mediator in Christ Jesus. And you are registered in the kingdom of heaven. And then it's this switch. And he's like, and you better not take it lightly. And you better not forget it. Because if you do, there is no hope for you. There's no hope to be found. And then he goes into kind of this end times kind of, prophetic word of judgment look at verse 7 he says this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken that is the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken would remain and that phrase yet once more with quotes he's referring to Haggai 2 6 and 9 this is what it says it says for thus says the Lord of hosts yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations So that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This is like a future judgment that's coming. So he's referring back to this word in Haggai. And he's saying, hey, this is coming. This time where God's going to shake the heavens and the earth. And the best way to kind of get a picture of what is happening in judgment, if you take like a marble and you put it and pack it in some mud and then you leave it out to dry in the sun, and it's just dry dirt, and you just pick up that clump of dry dirt, you just shake it until it comes off, and all that's left is the marble. You say, that's the imagery of the judgment that's coming. It's like, I'm going to take this world and I'm just going to shake it. And everything's going to crumble and fall apart. And the only thing that's going to be left are my people and my kingdom. That's what's coming. This, This coming judgment. Now, that is all being told to us in light of this story of Jacob and Esau. Or specifically the negative example of Esau. And maybe we got some Esaus in this room. Where it's like, Yeah, sure. I mean, an angelic party, who wouldn't want that? Forgiveness, enrollment in the heavenly city, sounds sweet. I mean, but that's, that's, I mean, way someday maybe type of thing. But right now, right now I'm hungry. Right now I'm, I just want to fit in. And right now I just want to have some fun right now, I just want to belong. And right now, I just want to make some money. And we're just trapped in love more with right now than the promise to come. And the right now is directing your decisions and your actions and your behaviors and your attitudes. Not the promise to come. And if you're talking to a Hebrew audience, they're really familiar with this story. And you know how the story goes? It ends with Esau in tears, wishing he could go back and make a different decision, and he can't. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is there's going to come a time, and time's up. And when judgment comes, and you're like, oh, I wish I, wish I would, I wish I would. It's like, no, time's up. Even if you seek it with tears. There's this plea like don't don't take this gospel message lightly. This is the salvation of your soul. And judgment is coming. But I get it. Right now it's hard. And it would be nice just to fit in. And it wouldn't be nice just to make money. And it would be nice just to have a good time. And it would be nice to try to fulfill all my desires. And I'm getting weary. And I'm tired and it's difficult so what do you do well the first thing he's calling us to do is remember the gospel remember what you're running towards remember what lies ahead of you but then he also calls us to some action look at verse 28 he says therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken let me just pause here and communicate some good news God's kingdom cannot be shaken, It cannot, cannot be shaken. It, it's kind of like Jesus teaching at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where he's like, hey, this one guy built his house on a rock. Another guy built his house on the sand. Storms came. The guy in the house on the sand got washed away. The guy that built his house on the rock, he's doing pretty well. Kind of that story. He's saying, listen, storms are going to come. How are you going to deal with those? Or or in other words, for this context, if you put your hope in your 401k or the economy or your job or your work ethic or your government, you're going to get all shook up. You are going to get all shook up. But if your hope is in God, it is unshakable. It is unshakable. Now, church, listen. If God's kingdom cannot be shaken, then God's people should display a steadiness in a world that's getting all shook up. you with me on that? If God's kingdom cannot be shaken, then God's people should display a steadiness in a world that's getting all shook up when everybody's else in panic and what about this and what if this happens and did you hear this happen and here's and what's, what's going to come next god's people should have a peace a steadiness because our hope is not built in this world it's not in this kingdom we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken so let's read this again it says therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that." Cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence at all. Now, there's a couple verbs I want to highlight here that call us to action. Be is a verb, or it can also be show um, gratitude, um, be grateful, or maybe your translation says hold on to grace, and the other one is offer. Um, What we're supposed to offer is acceptable worship. This is the action that he's calling to be grateful, offer worship. This is the the call to action here. Um, First one, we're supposed to be grateful. Now, there is a lot of things in our world that we could complain about. Amen? I mean, we we could last. (laughs) We could last for a while kind of venting and complaining. But what he's saying is uh, a defining characteristic of the Christian should be uh, unwavering gratitude. Like no matter what goes on, I have a gratitude that you can't take from me. I have a joy and a gratefulness because it's rooted in my future that's unshakable. So so the gratitude for the Christian is not based on current circumstances. It's based on a future reality. That's where our gratitude comes from. But he's saying you should express it now. Like yeah, it's rooted there, but, but the command is to be grateful now or to show gratitude now. Express gratitude now. Uh, the other action is to offer acceptable worship with reverence and all. So when you feel like quitting sometimes, the best thing to do is like, I just need to express some gratitude and praise. I need to kind of get out of myself and I need to be thankful to God, and I need to worship. But it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that, because it's not just a, a, a call to an action. If you notice here, what he's really commanding is an emotion. How do you command an emotion? What he's commanding us is to be authentically grateful, to have reverence and all for God, to God. That's, that's the command, this, this emotion. So it's not just, hey, sing a song and say thank you. He's like, no, there, there's more that I want there. There's, there. there's more to it than that. And he doesn't just say offer oh, worship, he says offer. Oh, acceptable worship. As in, if there's acceptable worship, that means there's unacceptable worship. Like those passages we looked at in the beginning. Like, hey, you're showing up and you're making sacrifices and it makes me sick. And you know, because you go out and you live lives that don't represent me. You bring me blind animals. Like, it's not... It's, there, there's something that matter is missing. Yeah, you're here. You're singing. You gave something. But, but what matters is missing. Like a passion, a zeal for the Lord. It's not about going through the motions. It's, 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 acceptable worship is all of life. And he gets into unpacking what he means by acceptable worship in chapter 13, where we're going to spend some weeks going through, but he gets down to like just practical godliness, brotherly love, hospitality to strangers, care for persecuted believers, honoring marriage, sexual morality, uh, not being greedy. But this this call to acceptable worship is a call to godliness in all of life. Or or put another way, passion to please the Lord in everything you do. A a zeal to honor God in all of life. But Still, it's it's an emotion that gets commanded. You think, how do you command an emotion? Or, Or maybe for a lot of us in this room, the question to ask is, if those emotions are fading because this world is tough and following Jesus is hard how do I rekindle them? how do I rekindle a zeal for the Lord? how do I rekindle a passion for Jesus? well notice that before the call to action there is the word therefore which is connecting this call to gratitude and worship with reverence and awe to what he was just talking about what was he just talking about? escaping the coming judgment because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the motivation for gratitude. That's where we find reverence and awe. So what does He want them and, and us to do? He wants us to be grateful. He wants to be in awe of God and have a reverence for God and worship Him. What does He want us to remember? He wants us to remember the gospel. And what we need to do is see the connection between the two. It's... Being made perfect by the work of Jesus Christ and having a mediator and having his blood that speaks a better name over us that we are forgiven and redeemed in him. That's what produces gratitude. It's knowing that we're registered in the kingdom of heaven and we have an angelic party and waiting for us. That's what motivates godly living. So the the application is not just church. Be more grateful. Worship. Worship. Be in awe. That's not the application. The application is, guys. Look at the gospel. they no, like, really look at it. Like turn it over in your head, dwell on it, and be absolutely wrecked by it. And you will find yourself being grateful and worshiping with reverence and awe. You need to think of it like this: keep the gospel in front of you to motivate godliness in you. Keep the gospel in front of you to motivate godliness in you. And you can have some good conversations in your connection group or with some friends about how do we keep the gospel in front of us. It's like fuel for our souls to press on an endurance. But church, listen, I, I know you know this because we talk about it a lot. Um, but I, but I want to reinforce it. I mean, the text is reinforcing it. I, I, I want to reinforce it that Christianity is not just a Sunday thing. It's not just a Sunday thing. It's not an event. It's a life. And all of life is all for Jesus. How you handle your money, how you treat your spouse, how you do your job, how you coach little league and parent, how you come to church, everything is worship. The way we do it kind of just declares, God, you're worth it. I want to please you in this. I want to honor you in the way I do this. I want to make you happy with the way I do this. It's just a passion and a zeal, and it's all of it saying, God, you're worth it. What, what you've done for us and what's waiting for me, I'm living for it, and it's worth it. And what he's saying in this text is, guys, don't, don't lose sight of that for a bowl of soup. And you might be like, I don't even like soup. <laughs> don't lose sight of that. For money. Don't lose sight of that. Just to fit in. Don't lose sight of that. For social acceptance. Look at verse 29. This is how he ends. He says for or because. This is why we should be grateful. And worship with awe and reverence. For because our God is a consuming fire. He is a God who just a sampling of his holiness shook the earth and he is a God who will again shake the whole world in judgment. Guys, this is not a God you just sing to once a week. This is not a God you just cut a check to. He is a consuming fire of holiness. And if you take him lightly, you're going to get burned forever. Forever but if you listen to the better word of the blood of Jesus Christ, you're going to get saved forever. And maybe some of you have lost a sense of awe and reverence for God. Or maybe some of you need to just fall in love with Jesus again. Or rekindle a passion and zeal for the Lord. To do that, we should listen to what the blood of Jesus is proclaiming. So when you come to partake in communion, as we do every Sunday, take some time to listen to the message of the blood. It says, God is holy, and he will not tolerate sin. And there needs to be a sacrifice for sin. And you're a sinner, and you deserve death, but it's not your death we're remembering, but the death of Jesus Christ. And his blood proclaims a better word, that you are loved despite your sin that you are forgiven and made perfect, perfectly forgiven, perfectly redeemed. And you are registered in the kingdom of heaven. And there's an angelic party waiting. And you dwell on that until you're absolutely wrecked by it. And then let's offer acceptable worship. Amen? And let's pray. Father, there are so many words begging for our attention that where we find fulfillment, joy, happiness, what we should make life about, who we are, where we find value and purpose, we pray that your voice is the loudest, that your blood speaks a better word, that we have value because we're loved by you. We have purpose because of you. We have a future because of you. I pray that that would be the loudest voice and we would have ears to hear the message of the blood of Jesus this morning and it would set our hearts on fire that we would love you, adore you. We would express gratitude towards you and we would express worship full of reverence and all to you. We love you We pray in your name, amen.